Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. I felt stirred by the Lord because I had the privilege and the opportunity to spend some time with a dear brother in Christ, uh, Daniel McLean, who was a pastor here. We went to ministry school together. Um, But I don't know about you, or is anybody here like really bad at long distance relationships? Like I have uh, really close and good friends all over the country, but you would never know it because we don't talk to each other. I have noticed that I'm really bad at being a friend unless that person is right in front of me. Um, Anybody else like that? Uh, I'm not saying like, it's not like there's like great division. I'm glad there's at least like three people here and everybody's like, no, you're just a terrible person, Pastor Nate. Um, (laughs) There are people that I care deeply about, but it's just when our circles don't interact very often, it's not like... I'm just not the guy that's going to be calling you up on the phone to talk for like four hours and catch up on your day when we're miles apart. And I realize some people are geared that way. That's just not me. Thankfully, my friend Daniel is also geared that way. And so we can go months, uh, even maybe a year without talking to one another. But when we see each other, we do get the chance to talk. It's like we picked up right where we left off. And uh, I just don't have a ton of friendships like that. And I was so grateful um, just for this time that I got to spend with Daniel. And uh, anyway, one of the things that was extremely beneficial of spending time with him was that I felt provoked. I was provoked to spend more time in the scriptures. I was provoked to spend more time in prayer. I was provoked to love Jesus more. And I I just realized how much I cherish that uh, special friendship that we have and how necessary and how vital it is for us to have relationships like that, that will provoke us to chase after Jesus. And I'm so happy to be able to be in a community of people that daily provoke me to love Jesus more. I love running with Adam uh, just as, as a friend before we're staff members together. Uh, because he challenges me to love Jesus. I, I, love, uh, I love my wife for so many reasons, but one of the things that she does is she provokes me to love Jesus more. And so I'm saying all of this because we're going to continue to look at the scriptures today, specifically the book of Hebrews, and we're going to see uh, the necessity of provocation in the midst of community today. And so just as a brief reminder, I'm going to read the passage of scripture that we were in last week. Um, And I I think it's so fitting because you're going to see how last week will connect with this week. And it's okay if you missed last week. That's why I'm reading it again. Uh, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, it starts off with this word, therefore. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast 
the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And so last week, uh, uh, we, we talked about the lettuces of Scripture. You remember that? Uh, the lettuces of Hebrews here is what I looked at. And we talked about different heads of lettuce. No, I just, I, I love this passage of scripture because there's multiple phrases of let us, let us. And it's, uh, I think that's so encouraging because it's not singularly directed at just a person. It doesn't tell you as an individual to do something. And this is something unique. Um, I, I don't know if you guys know this. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't pretend to be. I do uh, like to dabble, if that's a thing. <laughs> but I'm not a full-blown addict when it comes to uh, uh, these ancient languages and whatnot. Um, and I am by no means an expert. But one of the things that I found so pivotal uh, in kind of looking back to an ancient language or looking into the a concordance and really going back into the Greek is that a lot of the times when we use the word you... It can be either singular or plural, right? If I say, you go over there, I could be directing that at just Adam here to tell him to go over there. Or I could say, all of you uh, go over there, right? We understand that. But uh, uh, a lot of the times uh, we make reference of reading the scriptures as if they're directed to us as individuals rather than us collectively. And more often than not, the instruction that we see in Scripture is given to the saints. It's given to us in the context of a, a group or a community, not just an individual. And uh, anyway, when we're talking about the let us, it's very clear that it's inclusive of more than one person, right? It's us doing things together, uh, not individualistically individually. That's the word I was looking for. Anyway, but verse 19 here begins with this word, therefore. And uh, that word, therefore, is actually referencing the first part of Hebrews chapter 10, where we really see a, a picture and a portrayal of exactly what Jesus did for us with his death, his sacrifice upon a cross, and how he actually Tore, the veil was actually torn. The separation between God and man was removed and that we have this opportunity to draw near to God. And so my points from last week were that in light of the sacrifice of Jesus, in light of what Jesus did, there were three things that we ought to do. The three let us uh, commands was that we should draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. And then it was, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold firmly onto the truth and let us pursue the community of God's people. If, you, if that's a, a quick backdrop of where we were. And I kind of concluded with this sentiment, with this thought that we need to, we need to move away from this kind of... Uh, evangelical consumer version of Christianity, that we need to combat it. We need to stop viewing the church as a place that we simply come to receive from. 
I, you know, I love listening to pastors. I love listening to other teachers. But the mentality that you come here to be fed, the mentality that you come here to merely receive is a misguided notion. Trust me, friends, I want you to receive something beneficial from our teaching. I want you to receive from the Lord when you're gathered here in this house. I, I want you to receive uh, when you come, but the mentality that we come to receive is misguided as it's only half because we ought to come with the mentality to give as well. I'm not talking about giving in an offering or something like that, though we, of course we cherish that and we support that and we, we just pass offering plates. But the mentality that you come with an exhortation to share with one another. The mentality that when we gather that you have an active role in what's taking place here on a Sunday morning. And I, I strongly feel this and I feel like I need to share this. Um, I, I believe that you guys should spend time in preparation. I believe that you should spend time in prayer, time with the Lord in preparation, in anticipation of the gathering of God's saints. That way you have something to encourage another brother or sister with. In the same way that I spend time in prayer and I'm studying the scriptures and I'm spending time with God, that I have something to give from behind a microphone and a pulpit for you to receive, I believe that the same kind of intentionality ought to be had by God's people. For when we come together, that we have something to give one another as well. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with that? I know this is review. I know this is what we talked about last week. Um, but I, I believe it's so important that we can't overemphasize this. And that's why I think that when we're reading Hebrews chapter 10, and we just kind of blanketly throw it out there that it's about church attendance, we're missing the point. We're missing the heartbeat of what the author of Hebrews is actually talking about. And I, I will make this concession. Attendance is important because you can't be involved in some place if you're not actually attending, right? I think a lot of people like to make that, uh, that, that disconnect. It's not just about going to church, but it's really hard to be the church if you don't go to church. I think I've said that multiple times. Um, anyway. But as we look at the text this morning, and I'm really excited to get into this because I, I kind of wanted to hit on it last week and I just realized that my sermon was going to be 12 hours long if I tried to uh, cover everything. I'm going to do my best to uh, be concise this morning. But we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3 with me if you guys want to turn with me there. I want you to notice the similarities of what we're going to read this week, even the language that is used in these verses, um, and compare it with what I just read out of Hebrews chapter 10 and what we talked about last week, it's almost like the same person wrote it. That, that's a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that. Uh, I even wrote ha-ha in my notes to make sure uh, I laughed there. We're going to get a laugh track for our uh, live stream. Could we do that? Just uh, no. <laughs> Oh, man. I have noticed this. You guys always laugh at the moments where uh, I don't intend it to be. There's always these awkward moments in the service. Last week, uh, I was so distracted because I said, back in nautical times, uh, which uh, acts like people don't sail boats anymore or something like that. I was trying to, I was trying to talk about like sailors using, uh, 
using tattoos. Uh, uh, there was like popular tattoos that say hold fast on your knuckles and it was actually a Dutch sailing thing. But I said nautical times and everybody laughed. It was like, oh, and it's so funny. Ah. Anyway, we're in Hebrews chapter three. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive, that it is active, that is speaking to us today, that you have something for us. And so, Lord, we're just asking once again that you would help us receive what you have in store for us today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I'm going to read uh, verses 5 through 15. Uh, We're going to kind of do an exhaustive thing here. The first few verses of Hebrews chapter 3 deal with the establishment of the, of the truth that Jesus is better than Moses. It was a theological, of, it was a theological importance that the author of Hebrews was trying to make to primarily uh, Jewish Christians. This is where the book was written. And there was just this establishment of the fact that Jesus is actually better than Moses. But uh, It'll, it'll come into importance here as we read, but beginning in verse 5, it says, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, this is... This is uh, the author of Hebrews quoting the psalmist out of Psalm 95. Uh, He says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. This is specifically referring to an Old Testament passage um, where we're seeing there was a rebellion in the hearts of the people, uh, particularly at Meribah, but all the way actually kind of starts there and paints this broader picture of uh, Israel's unfaithfulness uh, and unbelief in their time in the wilderness, uh, that 40-year span. Okay, sorry. Uh, But therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take particular note here in verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence uh, steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Last week, uh, in the context of my sermon, and I was sharing about the time that I had spent with Daniel, and uh, just the grief, the overwhelming just, just brokenness that was expressed between the two of us as we recounted friends, as we recounted family, um, that we're not serving Jesus faithfully still. 
I know that many of us uh, can probably think of numerous people, numerous friends, family members. For me, fellow ministers, former students that were in my youth ministry, I look back on and see that they had genuine encounter with the Lord. A lot of these kids that I went to ministry school with, I mean, we sat in the same teaching We responded to the same altar calls. We experienced the same miracles. We saw God move. And a lot of them today have abandoned the faith altogether. And there's this kind of popular kind of language of deconstruction that's being thrown out there. And, uh, you know, as much as I am for returning to biblical Christianity, I made the same statement last week. I'm all for making sure that what we're doing is actually the Bible and following Jesus. But I fear that so many people have got caught up in this trend of deconstruction, that they've abandoned faith in Jesus altogether. And I I shared about just the grief and the sorrow and the, 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 the discouraging aspect of my time with Daniel as we were talking about this. And we begin to ask each other this question, how do we not get there? How, how, how do we not wind up like that? How, how do we make sure that, that, that 10, 20, 40, 50 years from now, we're still chasing after Jesus? And I, I believe that the answer that we both came to was, man, we have to stay connected to community. There's a, there's a song that I, I love to sing, and it's not recorded by anybody or anything like that. It was a song that a, a worship leader just sang in the prayer room at one particular time, and I've got like a 30-second snippet of it on my phone, but expressed in the sentiment of this song was, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And he talked about how much further along he thought he'd be as he progressed in his faith how much more holy and mature I thought I'd be. But now these days, I never want to stray from the community of need. And I I think there's just something about being rooted in dependence and rooted in community that has a staying power for, for finishing this race out all the way through. You know, I know there's theological arguments that abound on, uh, that, that have caused divisions and splits of churches and denominations on whether or not you can or cannot lose your salvation, where they really saved, where they're really not. And that's not the conversation I'm really interested in having this morning. But I do want to direct our attention to verse 12 because I believe it's a warning to believers. In verse 12, I'm going to read this real quick. Beware, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. There's a lot to unpack in this verse, but I want you to take it seriously in the fact that it's addressed to the brethren, uh, or the brothers. Your, your scripture might say brothers and sisters. This word is a unique word. It's not just, it, this word is a unique word in that it's not just addressing anybody It's not just addressing uh, kind of a group of people, but it's specifically reserved in this context for those that have professed faith in Jesus. That's what the strongest concordance would say here. And so I think it's interesting here that these are people that have believed in Jesus. 
And the instruction here is to beware. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I want to take this seriously. Because the implications of this verse seem to say that you can depart from the living God. And I know in my personal experience, I've seen people that have had genuine encounter with the Lord depart from a living God. And that's terrifying. And I begin to ask myself the question, God, what safeguards do I need to put in place so that I don't wind up like that? Because I'm talking about, friends, I have mentors. I, I had youth leaders. I had pastors that were instrumental in me knowing Jesus today that are not following him at all. I know that there are many of you that are sitting right here and you're thinking as I'm talking about this, there are names that are coming to mind and there might be disappointment, there might be frustration, there might be just questioning and doubt. How does that happen? I think, I think we should be honest with ourselves when we ask the question, how do we not get there? How do we not wind up there? And I think the first step is recognizing that uh, we're not immune to the deceitfulness of sin. I don't care how spiritually mature you might be. I don't care how long you've been in church. I don't care how, how much Bible you know. You are not immune to the deceitfulness of sin and the lie of an enemy. Remember Peter? I think of Peter often. I feel like if there's a guy in Scripture that I would like to think that I like kind of relate with somewhat, it's Peter. And it's not because Peter is like this dude that's just like really awesome and doing all this stuff. I, I mainly relate with Peter when he gets angry and he gets stupid, which happens a lot. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've noticed that about him, but he's like the guy cutting off people's ears and thinking that he's doing it for the Lord. And he's, he's the guy that's telling Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Has anybody ever done that? Um, some, sometimes I feel like Peter. You know, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. He's like, no, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. I would die before I denied you. Like three verses later, like same page in your Bible, he's denying that he even knows who Jesus is. I feel like I can connect with Peter. And I just, I, I don't want to think so highly of myself that I could never wind up like one of these peers of mine, as one of these brothers of mine that have completely abandoned orthodoxy or faith in Jesus altogether because sin is deceitful. I believe our success in this Christian walk, our success in this Christian life is more dependent upon each other than we'd care to admit or think. And we want to say, no, it's all upon the Lord. It's all upon what Jesus did on the cross. And I'm not saying that that's, that's wrong theology. Obviously, you could take a sound bite out of my sermon and completely be like, this guy's a heretic. <laughs> But I think there's a lot of emphasis placed, especially in our culture and especially in evangelicalism today, that it's about your relationship with Jesus. We invite people into a personal relationship with Jesus and, and we try to emphasize the fact as long as you and God are good, that's all that matters. 
Can I tell you that stands in defiance with what the rest of Scripture teaches? Can I tell you that it's not just about you and God? Because if that was the case, why wouldn't he just take you straight up to heaven right at the moment that you believed in him? I believe there is something to be said of the faith. I believe there's something to be said of Christianity that can only be worked out in the context of community. I believe that to be 100% true. Now, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of having a personal relationship with the Lord. I'm not trying to say that that's just hogwash and you don't need to actually spend time with God, that all you have to do is come to church and hang out with believers 24-7. Obviously, Jesus didn't say that. He, he stressed the importance of getting alone with the Lord, but I, I, think, we, I think we might romanticize that too much uh, in our culture because, let's be honest, how many of you guys just don't like people? Please, uh, I'm, I'm, there are like two people that are honest in here. Can I be honest? There are days when I, as a pastor, and I know this is my job, I just don't want to talk to people. You know, I think this was interesting. We had this revelation uh, when uh, halfway through my trip with Daniel, and we're staying in a hostel. You know, we're staying in different hostels uh, where we're staying because we're like, we're bachelors for the week because our wives aren't with us. We can stay as cheap as we want. And the whole idea of a hostel is to kind of like meet other people and you're like traveling and whatnot. And we're just like, man, we just don't like people. (laughs) Evidently, this is probably not good. We should probably take this to the Lord and uh, make sure that we're uh, we're good on this. Honestly, uh, you guys have heard that phrasing, that sentiment that's been expressed if you've uh, that church would actually be pretty awesome if it wasn't for other people, right? Um, but I, I think that there is just... Anyway, that's not... I should get back to my notes. Just think about this. Why is so much of Scripture directed to our relationship with other people not solely to our relationship with God. 1 John 4.20 tells us, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from Jesus, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You guys have to love me. Did you hear that? That's, that's how I read that. That's how I wrote that. If you don't love me, you don't love God. And there's something wrong with you. It's not always easy, is it? Any of you guys that have family know that it's not easy to always love those that are difficult, right? But there is the command here. I remember uh, this was before I became a Christian. I was like in fifth or sixth grade. But uh, I, was, uh, I went to a YMCA camp, and I had a counselor there. I, I'm fairly positive he was a Christian, but he told me um, he, he, he was kind of expressing this sentiment. Um, and he, he, he is a Christian, because uh, this quote wouldn't make any sense. But he told me that you only love God as much as you love your worst enemy. And I started thinking about that and be like, uh, what? Um, but connecting that and thinking about my relationship with other people. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's like a theological truth there. But the reality of it is, 
is that our relationships with other people are important. And Scripture very plainly says that we can't love God and hate our brother. And that's, uh, that's convicting for me because I can honestly think of people that are Christians that I just despise, that I would not say I love them. And Scripture, the Lord, the Holy Spirit says that that's not okay. Our relationships, community is of utmost importance to this Christianity thing. Uh, one of the surveys that I was reading, oh, and I didn't quote it. It was a legitimate survey. It was by Roof and McLennan, I think. I'm making those names up right now, but I remember the first guy's name was Roof. McKinnon, McLennan, I don't know. Uh, I didn't put it in my, my notes here. But uh, this particular survey uh, found that more than 78% of the general public and over 70% of church-going people, and to be considered church-going means that you just had to go to church twice in the last year. Um, anyway, believe that you can be a good Christian without attending church. And so regardless of if I've got those numbers perfectly right or whatnot, I do know this. The majority of people that you would ask this question to, and maybe even you here in this building right now, might answer something along the lines is that you can be a good Christian without attending church. Now, I, one, think this is completely rubbish, um, but I think there, we need to kind of examine this statement here because, one, I don't think that there can be a good Christian or a bad Christian. I, 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 think that, <laughs> I think you're either saved or you're not. You're either close to Jesus or you're far from him. And I don't necessarily think that Paul even gives like, when we're talking about like spiritually mature and those that are spiritual, there's not a degree of saved. You guys understand that, right? Um, you don't get more saved or less saved just because you've been in church longer or you know more Bible than the person next to you. Um, I, I think that that is just kind of a, a funny thing to, to really think about, that good Christians go to church, bad Christians only come on Christmas or something like that. Um, I, I, and the second thing about this kind of statement in this survey that kind of irks me here is that uh, church attendance is not a good metric to judge somebody's spirituality. I want you guys to understand that. Like, somebody's church attend. God isn't going to, like, uh, be, like, at the gates of heaven or Peter or whatever, at the pearly gates, however the, that comic or cartoon goes, isn't going to be there and, like, checking your church attendance and make sure, like, you had gold stars and you had to, like, if you miss 10 times at church, somehow you're not going to get into heaven or something like that. We understand that spiritual maturity is not based upon church attendance. And I think that it's just kind of a silly metric to try to use. And so when I'm sharing these things and I'm talking about, uh, when I'm talking about forsaking the fellowship of believers, I'm not talking about church attendance. Uh, I want to talk about church involvement, your involvement in the community of the believers, your involvement in the life of the church, your involvement in the, the, the fellowship of the community of God is a big deal. Because make no mistake, there are plenty of people that attend church regularly that will not be in heaven. 
There are plenty of people that attend church and they think that that makes them a Christian. I shared that Keith Green quote last week, and I'll share it again, that, uh, that uh, you know, going to church makes you as much of a Christian as going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And I think Keith Green just is awesome, and I love that quote. But the reality of it is, coming to church does not make you a Christian, right? You guys know that. You, you, you've grasped that. It's just not... Um, it's, if, I, if I'm saying, if I it can make stress one point here, friends, I really could care less about you showing up on Sunday morning uh, if you're not involved in the life of the church outside of the two hours that we're here. This is important. The ministry of the word, the fellowship that we have together in singing, uh, in worship, and the way that God moves, I have a... Sunday mornings have such a special place in my heart, and I believe it's important. I, I believe it's very important that we prioritize this gathering. I even believe Hebrews chapter 10 talks about the formal assembly of the saints. I talked about that last week. It's important, but we can't just come to church and expect that to be the culmination of Christian life. There is more, we are missing out if our expression of Christianity is conformed or confined to two hours on a Sunday morning. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, there are five things from the text this morning that I believe are essential to us holding fast, to holding firm, that prove to be effective most in the context of community. I, I believe that there's five things that community really promotes that we should strive to have in our life every single day. And so I'm going to read uh, verses uh, 12 through 15 here, and then we're going to kind of look at these from the text. Beginning in verse 12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The first thing that I want to uh, address here, the first thing that I believe that community promotes is awareness. The very first word here in verse 12 is beware. It's to be alert, to be on the lookout. I believe in the context of community, this proves to be most effective because we have blind spots, do we not? There are areas of my life that I'm not always extra observant about, but I have friends that are thankfully bold enough to call me out on the things that are missing or lacking in my life. And this is why I think Christianity can't be a one-man show because we seem to just uh, gloss over uh, our, our inadequacies a lot. I think a lot of our, our insecurities, um, anyway, we tend to not examine ourselves as closely as we ought to. And I believe that community promotes awareness. It's the idea of kind of like a... Um, you know, somebody being on the lookout uh, for one another. 
And I believe that we have specific instruction here to be on guard against unbelief because we all have blind spots. It makes me think of some of the language that we'll read in 1 Peter when we're being told to be aware. Um, 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. There's something about watching out for one another that is important. I want people to reach out to me when they see me slipping. And we ought to have that sense of camaraderie uh, where we watch out for one another, where we're observant of one another. We're observant of what's wrong in each other's lives. And that's why you can't have this outside the context of community. It doesn't do us much good just to be alert by ourselves. It's important. But I also think that there is room for us to watch out for one another. I want to take this uh, moment here as we're looking at this verse because we're talking about unbelief here, right? Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That's like heavy language. That's intense language there, right? That's not like just kind of casual like, Oh, that's not a big deal because sometimes we treat unbelief as something that is just kind of casual. We don't really, I don't know if we often think of it as sin, but uh, this is very much where this begins to be classified as sin. The language, evil heart of unbelief is heavy, it's intense, but I want to be clear here. Unbelief is not uh, equated with the inability to comprehend something. Unbelief is not uh, simply the inability to understand something, but it's rather unwillingness to trust someone. It is not just talking about the will. It is talking, um, it is not just talking about intelligence of somebody, but it's the will that's involved behind it. Um, I like what David Guzek says. Because he, he kind of helps bring clarity here. He talks about that one can truly believe God, to believe him and his promises to be true, but be troubled by doubts. Because how many of you guys have doubted? Everybody raise your hands. If you haven't, I want to talk to you and uh, you can pray for me. But <laughs> the reality of it is uh, we struggle with doubt. There's uncertainty. There are things that we wrestle with. But there is a doubt that wants God's promise that is weak in faith at the moment. On the other hand, contrary to that, unbelief is not weakness of faith, but it sets itself in opposition to faith. Unbelief, I believe, is an affront to God's character. It's to call God a liar. It's to say that everything you are and everything that you promised just isn't true. How many of you guys have been accused of lying when you weren't? Thank you. Uh, people are getting the hang of this. They're raising hands. This happens to me a lot. Um, I, think there was a, I think there was a day and age back when I was younger where I developed a reputation for uh, being a little extra in playing uh, board games and uh, trying to stir responses out of people. I may have cheated once or twice. 
And this is where it becomes personal. This is where it hurts. Because to this day, I think I cheated like once, maybe twice. And I say this on record, before God in his holy house, not, uh, not overly intentionally, uh, uh, but, but it's happened. But I have had this reputation where even now, on the front row, my dearest friends are calling me out as a cheater and a liar and a conniver. The, 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 you have to understand this about me. My youth pastor, the man that led me to Jesus, would pull us aside. And his, if we were at summer camp and there were like games to win or there was some kind of glory to be had, he would say, I don't care what you have to do. You can lie, you can cheat, you can steal. You just better win because that's why the altar call is at night and the games are during the day. <laughs> Mighty man of God. So I took that to heart. In all, in all honesty, can I tell you it hurts? Uh, he, was, he was kidding. I don't think 14, 15-year-old me knew that he was kidding, and I might have taken that to heart a little too much. But the reality is uh, it can kind of hurt, uh, especially to this day when somebody, and I know that I'm telling the truth. I know that I am, I am not cheating, and somebody's like, oh, you're a cheater, Nate, or you're lying about this or something, and it's like, I am not, and it hurts. <laughs> I pranked way too much when I was a kid. But that's me, and I kind of deserve it, right? How much more does it hurt the heart of God who has done nothing but demonstrate patience and goodness to his creation century after century after millennia after millennia and has had no character flaw, <laughs> has never wronged us once. And we say, you know what? I just don't know if I believe you, God. I don't know if I can trust you because there's literally nothing more that he can do. He died on a cross, a scandalous death. That's why unbelief is such an affront to God. That's why it's considered sin because there, there's nothing more that he can do. It's, it defames his character. It defames his nature. It's an affront. It's an attack on his very nature. <laughs> this notion of unbelief is interesting to me. And I think this is where sin is so deceitful because I don't really know if unbelief is classified as uh, what we think it is because can I tell you that I, I don't really think unbelief exists I think you always wind up believing something everybody's got beliefs about something whether you're agnostic atheist whatever it's I don't believe in God well if you don't believe in God you believe in science right? Nacho Libre. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go down that road or we'll never get back. But <laughs> the reality of it is so many people uh, might claim that they don't have belief in something, but they do. They don't believe in God. They wind up believing in some other ideology or whatnot. And the reality is when we stop believing in God and his promises, we begin to believe the lie of sin. 
And it's deceitfulness that seeks to unravel our faith. The second thing that I believe community promotes, the first one being awareness. Community, right, it's the idea of a herd, right? Uh, the herd mentality where you're on the lookout for predators and you keep each other, uh, you keep each other safe. I believe that that is uh, something to beware here. I think that their community uh, promotes awareness. The second thing that community promotes is consistency. How many of you guys are really good at doing things consistently? Woo, not a lot of hands went up. Guy had a few. Praise God. You know, my, my father-in-law over here, he's really consistent at riding a bike, and he is a beast. I tried to keep up with him for like six months, and it uh, didn't happen. I did really good at riding this bike uh, for six months, and I was like, I'm going to beat you in a race. I was even smug. This is talking about how competitive I can get. He built this house. He built this upper room that's his like Peloton room where he can ride his bike, and I wrote on the, on the inside of his wall as they were building that, I'm coming for you, John. And then I think that was the last time I ever got on a bike. <laughs> Talk about consistency or lack thereof. Oh, man, and you guys can tell. I, I need to, I, I, it's, it's not a spiritual gift. It's a discipline. Uh, anyway, there's a message to be written there. Um, just saying, uh, it's hard to be consistent in a lot of areas of life. That's where most diets fail. That's why most people aren't as healthy as they ought to be. And the same is true when it comes to spiritual growth and spiritual life. Consistency can be difficult, but it's when we're consistent that we actually grow. And that's why the sporadic kind of popping in here and there uh, to a church service or a prayer meeting every once in a while actually doesn't facilitate spiritual growth. I think it actually does more harm than good. I think that's why Paul would say when someone was living in sin that you're to cut them off from the fellowship of the saints because it's a recognition that I need the life that is inside the church if I'm ever going to succeed. Because it's in the place of consistency, consistent fellowship, that we actually see spiritual growth. And I, I, I think it's very uh, interesting here because verse 10 says that we exhort one another daily. Last week we talked about exhorting one another uh, at the gathering of the saints, right, or the fellowship of the assembly. Here, I mean, there's not another way you can interpret this. In order to exhort one another daily, that means that you have to have daily interaction with one another. Sunday cannot be the lone expression of your faith we need daily, everybody say daily, daily, daily encouragement with other believers. I'm thankful for a spouse that helps fulfill part of this, but I believe that there is a biblical demand upon us to have friendships, to have relationships within the community of faith where we can be mutually encouraged by one another. And it's something... Now, this doesn't mean like you have to go out, like I'm not saying you have to go spend 10 hours with somebody every day, but I believe more importantly here, there should be a consistency. And that consistency can only be fostered in the place of community. I believe exhortation's a big deal. Um, 
I, I want you to be released from the lie, friends, this morning. Some of you are here where you feel like you don't have anything to offer the household of God, where you don't feel like, you, you may feel like you're too big of a mess up, you're too far gone, that you don't have something to offer to one another. Maybe you're a newer Christian, maybe you just feel like you're not that smart. The reality of it is God wants to minister to you in such a way that you have something to offer everyone else as well. Um, it's not reserved for the guy with the microphone. Hmm. 11.30. I can do this. Exhortation uh, means to encourage or to encourage firmly uh, as the Strong's Concordance would give. But it doesn't just mean to kind of puff somebody up. It can also mean to encourage from Scripture, to exhort, to even bring correction or rebuke. That's not something that we really like to think about, right? We're quick to think about Jesus uh, in his Sermon on the Mount telling people like, don't uh, remove the speck of dust from your brother's eye while you have a log in your own eye. It actually doesn't say don't remove the speck of dust. It's just saying give priority to the glaring inconsistencies in your life before you help your brother. Guys, if I have a speck of dust in my eye, I want help as long as you don't have a log in yours. Okay. Like, I can use help. And, and we think about thou shall not judge and all of these things. Uh, exhortation, correction, rebuke, those are good things. And I think a lot of the times there are, at least in my context of church, maybe you guys can agree with me with this, there are certain people that are really good at bringing correction for other people. Right? Anybody encounter those people? And maybe, maybe God has gifted you in that. I praise God for that. Um, but if you're constantly on the giving end and not the receiving end, I would just encourage you to examine that. Because many of us can be good at exhorting one another, or we, we can exhort somebody, but we're bad at the one another part. It's supposed to be mutual. It's supposed to be reciprocated here. And if you're always just encouraging one another, but you're never encouraged, you're missing out. It has to be reciprocal here. Um, and I, I, think, I think one of the biggest things that will help us in this is if we can just be teachable. I, I, I had somebody ask me for some advice one time on how to stay tender before the Lord and how to... I don't really remember the context of the question, if I'm being honest, so I'm not going to try to give it. But I do remember my answer. My answer was, friend, be teachable. Because uh, I have encountered people that are stubborn, that are convinced that they're right, and nobody wants to be around those people, even when they are right. <laughs> but there's something to be said of humility and being teachable that will take you a long way, not just in faith, but in all aspects of life. If you are above uh, being told that you're wrong and you can't actually respond to correction, you will never succeed in the family of God. You won't succeed anywhere in life. Makes me think of the psalmist in Psalm uh, 141. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. Think about that all the time. 
I remember being a young punk teenager just recently giving his life to the Lord, and I thought I knew it all. I've been warned that teenagers know it all. I'm thankful I've got like another like uh, 10 years before my kids are really there, but uh, I, I remember me thinking that I knew everything, right? And uh, just being a punk and the same, uh, the same youth pastor, I, um, I just remember one very pivotal moment after I had done something very stupid. I thought I was justified and I had this arrogant, smug attitude. I'm thankful I had a man of God in my life that was willing to call me, call me out on being an idiot. I think he might have even used that exact language. (laughs) And I remember how I responded in that moment. And I remember just by the grace of God being grateful that somebody loved me enough to tell me that I was wrong. And I, I genuinely believe this one particular phone call, my, my one response in that moment to respond to a man of God when I was in the room, and it was over something that wasn't that serious, but I remember receiving that correction. And I believe it's honestly taken me a long way in following Jesus in my life overall. I would encourage you, friends, be willing to be corrected. Seek it. Give people access um, and be willing to be corrected when you're wrong. I'm not saying submit yourself to like spiritual abuse or something like that. But I believe that there should be a genuine tenderness uh, within the family of God when we're encouraging, when we're exhorting one another, that there should be room for us to be corrected. Because our culture, our age, never wants to tell anybody that they're, they're wrong. Somehow that's a taboo now. But the reality of it is, sometimes we've got to make those tough calls. And I don't want us to paint the image that encouragement or exhortation is just being nice to each other. Sometimes it's bringing correction. Does that make sense? And I believe it's impossible to biblically exhort outside of community. And my reasoning for that is this, is because it becomes hostile when it's removed from the context of community. Because when you lack that genuine concern that's naturally fostered in a place of community, I believe that that, uh, I believe that, I believe community and the genuine concern that's there acts as a natural safeguard against that kind of judgmental, holier-than-thou attitude of a Bible thumper that's not from community. I don't know if you guys... Uh, I pray that there's nobody here this morning, Um, but oftentimes when I preach, uh, I get somebody that'll come up to me that's complete, this is their first time here, their first time ever at the church, and they like to come and tell me 25 things that I did wrong in the service and in the sermon, and feel, and they think that it's encouraging to me in some sense. And I don't know this guy from Adam, Uh, it's just like, what in the world is going on here? Um, If that's you, please stop doing that. Um, if you're, uh, just, just so you know, if you're traveling somewhere and you wind up at a church, um, it's not always helpful. Um, maybe if like the, maybe if the pastor is like preaching heresy, that's one thing. Um, whatever. Uh, I'm just saying that it, correction is best received in the context of community. You guys get that, right? Okay, moving on to point three. Community promotes urgency. 
And this is, a, this is a vital theme throughout the entirety of the passage. And it's this theme of today, right? Verse 13 uh, talks about exhorting one another daily while it is called today. If we read all the way back into Psalm 95, the quotation uh, that the author of Hebrews made, he talks about today, today, today. There is urgency to be had with this language. The Holy Spirit is prompting us to get right with, uh, with God now. He's not prompting us to get right with God tomorrow or to trust in the security of what we've had with God in the past. We're not looking to our experience yesterday as something that is uh, holding us firm, but we hear and we read here in this passage of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is prompting us uh, today. It's an urgent message not to delay. And I think the urgency is to be felt even much more so than the author of Hebrews had in mind for the audience at hand. I say that because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, where we were last week, it says, Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This was written 2,000 years ago, right? Uh, believing that Jesus was coming back. We are that much closer to this day approaching than they were. And it should, to me, it tells me that there should be an intensity that, intensity, wow, words are a struggle for me today. Thanks for making grace for me. But what I read here and what I sense here is that there should be an urgency about the gathering of God's people. There should be an urgency that's sensed when we're gathered together, more so than just Sunday morning. You guys get what I'm saying there, right? Today, uh, I really like David Guzek. Uh, I read his commentary on this passage again. And one of the things that he talked about uh, with this invitation and with this language of today is that today marks a specific place in time. And he uses this example of inviting somebody over for dinner. And if I were to just invite somebody over for dinner, like I do all the time, like, Stephen, I invited you. I said, hey, man, we need to get together sometime. And we didn't really make a plan, right? We didn't really give a date. We didn't really give a time. And so that just kind of leaves it out in limbo. But if I'm like, hey, man, we should get together today after church, then we're like, okay, that's a firm invitation, and I want you to understand that I think that that is true here when the Holy Spirit is speaking here in these first few verses where it says the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, uh, today, do not harden your hearts. In the same way that it is called today, there should be some urgency about our gathering because it's a firm invitation. It's set in stone. Anyway. Uh, there should be urgency that's promoted amongst the gathering of the saints. And I believe that is, uh, I believe that is edged on. I believe that is spurred on. I believe that is provoked in the context of community. The fourth thing that I believe that community promotes is authenticity. And I'm using the word authenticity here because I believe it to be best, uh, I believe it to be the best fit as a counter to the deceitfulness of sin. 
Right? Verse 13 again says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And I, I start thinking about this and the deceitfulness of sin and how, how easily it entangles, how easily it ensnares, how easily it gets us to believe into the lie and how easily it begins to separate us from God. And uh, I, I, I just know the damaging effects of it. But can I be honest? I think that Christians, and I, I put that maybe in quotations here, are some of the best deceivers that I know. How many of us are quick to walk through these doors on a Sunday morning and put on a face and pretend like everything's okay and everything is perfect and there's nothing wrong at home and there's no struggles and there's nothing wrong in life? Because then it just gets messy, then it gets hard, then you have to deal with people, and then they start asking questions, and it's just all too much to really kind of bring on. <laughs> That's why I believe community has to run deeper than an hour on Sunday morning. Because honestly, there isn't a lot of time that we get to spend getting involved in each other's lives just right here, right now, right? I don't believe that that is even the, the express context or, or the, the purpose of this gathering. That's why I'm excited for something like a small group that we're starting up on Friday nights. I, that's why I'm excited and I love what we have going in deeper project and just genuine relationships with believers outside of something that's scheduled is awesome because it opens up space for us to really get into each other's life. And so when I'm talking about authenticity... I believe we can expose sin for what it actually is. That we don't have to pretend like it's not there or that it's not a problem or that it's not a struggle because community provides a safe place for sin to be dealt with. James 5.16 tells us that we're to confess our sins to one another. Not to the Lord here even. Is that crazy? Uh, that we're to confess our sins to another one, one another. Obviously, we confess our sins to the Lord to pray for one another that you may be healed. I believe that we confess our sins to the Lord that we may be forgiven, but we see here that we confess our sins to one another, that we pray for one another, that we might find healing, that that freedom could be had. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That only happens in the context of community, of a safe place, of intentionality. The fifth thing that I believe community helps promote is longevity. I'm going to read this verse 14 out of the NIV, which says, We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. This is kind of where it comes full circle, where I was having this conversation with my friend. How do we hold firmly? How do we hold fast? How do we stay connected to the very end? How do we hold our original conviction that we started out that Jesus is Lord? How do we, how do we hold on to that till the very end? This idea of holding fast. It's what Paul would write to his spiritual son, Timothy. Right? He, he would say that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. How, how, do, how do I have that be said of me at the end? How, how, how do we have something of longevity? Because I'm so discouraged about people that throw in the towel and say, you know what? Jesus was just too hard. I can't do it. 
The context of the entire book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers that were, exp- that were experienced extreme persecution and uh, adversity because of their faith in Jesus. And some of them were questioning. Some of them were doubting. Some of them were saying, you know what? It's not worth it anymore to say yes to Jesus because this is way too hard. Newsflash. Spoiler alert, life is difficult. Relationships are hard. Following Jesus was never promised to be easy. We're promised to partake, to share in Christ. But it's contingent, this verse says, that we hold firm. We hold fast to our original conviction to the very end. How you finish is so much more important than how you started. And I don't know what your story looks like right now. I don't know exactly all of the intricacies. I don't know where your faith is. I, I, I can't plot it on a faith meter or something like that. But can I tell you how you finish is what's important. This may be a struggle right now, may seem dim, but can I tell you there is hope because it's not over yet. And it, likewise, if you feel like you're on top of the world, you should watch yourself. Take heed lest you fall. Keep rooted in the community of need and dependence. Because how you finish is what's important. Right? Wasn't that the parable of the sower that Jesus shares in Matthew 13? Right? He's, he's sowing seed and some of the seed falls upon uh, rocky ground and it grows up quick but it doesn't take root so it dies quickly. Right? It started great but it didn't finish well. Or, or, or the other, or the other seed that's, or the seed that's sown on the on the other soil, and it grows up, but weeds and thorns come in and choke it out. It started well, but it didn't finish well. The important thing, friends, is that we finish well, and I believe longevity. The key to longevity is found staying rooted in community, staying connected to believers and brothers and sisters that are going to help you finish this race well. My encouragement to you is the same kind of encouragement that I I think is trying to be expressed throughout the rest of Hebrews chapter 3, even into Hebrews chapter 4, when we see this promise of God's rest. But in 3.18, this chapter ends, and it says, To whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. It's talking about the Israelites that don't enter into the promised land because they didn't actually take God at his word. They didn't believe in his promise and they began to give up when things got difficult. And my question or my encouragement to you would be don't give up just because faith is hard. Your faith, your belief needs to be in a, rooted in an unchanging God. Not into this kind of everything else in life is destined to change. It's constant. 
because we live in a broken, fallen humanity that is corrupted by sin, things are constantly just feel like a storm, do they not? And it just seems like there's always something wrong. There's always something that isn't quite right. But when your faith and your belief is placed in a God that doesn't change, there is strength to be found and you can hold on. You can continue to hold fast. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at here. And I think how I'm going to conclude this morning, I kind of started in prayer with this. There's this kind of paradoxical prayer that's recorded in the New Testament in Mark chapter 9. There's this story of, uh, of a man that has a son that is possessed by demons, brings him to the disciples and asks the disciples to cast this demon out of the kid and the, kid can't do, uh, and the disciples can't do it. Jesus comes down uh, from the Mount of Transfiguration. He's just like, he's glowing and whatnot. He, I mean, like, he's Jesus. And he, he calls these people and says, how long do I have to be with you unbelieving people? How long do I have to put up with this unbelief? This is ridiculous. And he responds to this dude and he says, anything is possible if you believe. This is Nate's paraphrased version. And the immediate response of this man with tears is, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus proceeds to go and heal this man's son. But I think that's a profound prayer for us this morning because I know that that's where I find myself most of the time. Lord, I believe, but my faith is weak. I believe, but... Help my unbelief. I want to actually take God at his promise. I believe that faith in Jesus is best cultivated when we're doing it with one another. We're going to conclude our time this morning with uh, taking of the Lord's Supper together. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.